Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 958. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that... We may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. So if you're visiting with us, just to let you know kind of where we've been and why we're looking at 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, we've been doing a series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is actually our last Sunday. Um, We've gone all the way through to the end of chapter 16, but we did leave chapter 11, verses 17 to 34 for a Sunday where we would actually be participating in the Lord's table, so we skipped over it and we're coming back to it. So this is our our last Sunday um, in this book. And the series title is Cruciform Living. We're all going to be shaped by something. Um, It's so easy to be shaped by the prevailing values of the culture, the world around us. And as Christians, we need the cross, we need the gospel to shape our lives, our priorities, our values, our affections, our behaviors, our thinking, everything. And so we need help with that. The church in Corinth certainly needed help with that. We need help with that. And so that's what the book of 1 Corinthians does over and over again on all kinds of issues. It shows us what a life shaped by the cross, shaped by the gospel looks like. So 
Before we dive into chapter 11, let me just kick up some, some memories. For some of you, these are distant memories, okay? So I want you to think about elementary school, middle school, lunchtime. So who were you in the lunchroom? Did this happen to you? Like the haves and the have-nots as far as what you opened up in that lunchbox. I don't know about you, but I was always jealous of this guy named Chad because he had like the best lunches and mine's, mine were kind of like ho-hum. Anybody, anybody? You guys awake? Okay, maybe I should pick a different introduction. All right. Um, so you were probably either the envier or the envied. Um, sometimes, so, so sometimes, you know, stuff happens, some, some dynamics happen because of the haves and the have-nots on the lunch front, but also seating was oftentimes dictated by other ins and outs, haves and have-not sort of dynamics, right? So it could have been related to money which was demonstrated by the clothes that you were wearing or the shoes that you had or whatever it was, the toys that you had, by cool and uncool, by education, like the smart people, the jocks over here, different, you know, factions and divisions. Um, anyway, lots of other things divided, divided us up. So... I think we can look back and say, wow, that was pretty childish. But have we really gotten beyond that in our world? Isn't it still the same stuff that divides us? It's just we're, maybe we're a little bit more sophisticated about it, but money still does it. Cool factor or not still does it. Kind of your personality, you know, whether you're athletic or you're a brain or you're whatever, Education, does it? Other preferential issues, all kinds of stuff separates us into our little camps and cliques and factions and divisions. And that was certainly going on in Corinth. And it can go on among us. And it's something we need to guard against because that is childish. It's what characterizes so much of our world and the gospel, the cross, is powerful to, to unite. What in the world are we doing together this morning? Look at this motley crew. Just look around. Okay, so do we actually embody this wonderful, radical unity in our relationships, in our corporate dynamics? I think we, we do have a fair degree of unity, but it's, it certainly could always be under threat there can be weaknesses here and there, and so we always need to be on guard, and we need to be cultivating an atmosphere where the gospel shapes our individual lives and our corporate life and unity together. Um, Josh was speaking of this even as he was leading as well, and, and the scriptures that were read. So let's dive into the middle of chapter 11 here, this section. We're actually going to dive into the middle of our section. We're going to look at verses 17 to 34, and we're going to start in verses 23 to 30. 26. So there's an outline in the bulletin if that helps you. Um, there's slides that will be up here. Um, if you're not a notes person, who cares? Just anything to help you follow along and focus on the text. So um, first point, the meaning of the supper. What is the Lord's Supper all about? Well, it's all about our crucified, loving Savior. So we're going to start there with the meaning of the supper in verses 23 to 26. 
So Paul writes to the church in Corinth here. He's addressing lots of issues, and he certainly has to address a big issue when it comes to their practice of the, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it was the night of Jesus' betrayal, and he knew it. And what was Jesus doing? He was giving thanks that night, and he's giving his disciples a whole new paradigm for the Passover meal, this last supper that they enjoyed together before Jesus was arrested and ultimately crucified. So the Passover meal is the meal in which this took place. What was the Passover meal all about? It was the remembrance and the celebration of redemption from Egypt for God's people, right? So it was a meal that the disciples had celebrated many, many times, year after year, commemorating God's mighty deliverance of his people out of the house of slavery, and then ultimately into the promised land. So deliverance from Egypt in the Old Testament was the paradigm for redemption. That was the paradigm for redemption for the disciples growing up as, as Jews in the first century. And this meal that memorialized it centered around a lamb slain, right? So the body of the lamb was given for the nourishment of the family as they left slavery behind and embraced the hard road of freedom through the wilderness to the promised land. The blood of the lamb shed, properly applied on the doorposts. It covered them from the judgment of God on his enemies. So the body of the lamb, the, bread, uh, the blood of the lamb. And so with that background in their minds, the Lord, Lord Jesus' last supper with his disciples was a Passover meal. You can see there's divine intentionality in this. It wasn't accidental that Jesus was slain right after this, at this time of the year. So Jesus is going to take this meal and transpose it to proclaim an even greater redemption. So his disciples won't understand until after the resurrection, but Jesus is going to take this Passover meal and turn it into his supper. Okay? Jesus did not come simply to be a good teacher, though he was that, the best teacher. He didn't come merely to show us how to live, though he did, and he is our example, and we should walk in his footsteps. He didn't come primarily to heal and to do miracles, though he did, and they were wonderful. The kingdom, the, the, the all things made new, breaking into the now. Our greatest problem was, back then, is now, it's our sin. Our greatest problem is not out there. The disciples were tempted to think that Roman oppression was their greatest problem, and the Messiah would come and free them from that. No, Jesus needed to convince them and show them that their greatest problem was in here, and it's the same for us. 
You remember the Israelites' first Passover? They were delivered circumstantially out of Egypt, but they weren't delivered spiritually. Their hearts were still hard. Do you see that? Their deepest slavery was not external but internal. And Jesus came to die to deliver us from ourselves, from our natural bentness and sinfulness and brokenness. So he became the Lamb of God slain whose blood could cover our sin and protect us from the wrath of God. His body was broken and given to feed our souls with his grace that gives us life. So this redemption in Christ is the greatest redemption, freedom and deliverance from the tyranny of sin and Satan and death and hell. So it's not necessarily a circumstantial deliverance. You see how it's flipped? We go through some really hard stuff in this life. We're not saved from suffering, but it is a spiritual deliverance. And one day, everything will be made new. We will be fully delivered and redeemed. So the wages of sin is death. The just judgment for our sin is hell. In order to deliver us, the Son of God would have to absorb, take our place, absorb the righteous wrath of God for all who would ever trust in him. Listen to these summaries of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Peter 2. Jesus, he who knew no sin, he had to become sin for us in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 Peter 2, 24, he had to bear our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He was wounded so that we might be healed. His body was broken that we might be healed. He drank the cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom so that we might drink from the cup of salvation. That is the ultimate redemption. It's the ultimate display of love and selfless, sacrificial, others-centered giving. And that's actually what we proclaim at this table. It's what we remember It's what we remind ourselves of. It's what we remind each other of. It's what we feed on at the table. This table is tangible, tactile, tasteable reminder of what is real and true. I mean, you ever thought about this? Isn't it thoughtful of God to give us this? Do you think of God as thoughtful? He doesn't just give us concepts and propositions. He gives us himself, ultimately, in flesh and blood in the Lord Jesus. And then he gives us this regular meal at which we can taste and see that the Lord is good. So you probably have never read the Belgic Confession, but listen to this. 1561, and it's so well written and so encouraging about what's the meaning of this meal? What's the meaning of the ordinances or the sacraments of the sacrament of the Lord's table? Just listen carefully. We believe that our gracious God, taking account of our weakness and infirmities, has ordained the sacraments for us, thereby to seal unto us his promises and to be pledges of the goodwill and grace of God toward us and also to nourish and strengthen our faith, which he has joined to the word of the gospel, the better to present to our senses 
both that which he declares to us by his word and that which he works inwardly in our hearts, thereby confirming in us the salvation which he imparts to us. That's a really good summary of what this is all about. C.S. Lewis put it memorably when he said this, Here, a hand from the hidden country touches not only my soul, but my body. Here, the prig, he's speaking of himself, the prig, the academic, the modern in me has no privilege over the savage or the child. Here is big medicine and strong magic. The command, after all, was take, eat, not take, understand. This is not just for the smart enough. It's for everyone and He wants it to be touchable, tasteable grace. So the Lord's Supper is a sign. It signifies something. Just like the rainbow. I mean, think about it. The rainbow is a sign, right? Covenant sign. Did God have to do that? I mean, isn't his word good enough? His word is his bond. I mean, like, he's not going to break his word, but he wanted to make it even clearer. I saw one a day or two ago, and I'm reminded of the promise. So the rainbow was added to the promise God made to Noah and all succeeding generations. God didn't have to do that, but he wanted to because he's thoughtful. And he wants to make it really clear and drive it home all the way down to our bones. Or the Exodus deliverance. He could have just done it, boom. Don't mess with my, my people. They're out. But he gave signs and wonders. He added all these things, signifying the truth that, oh, Pharaoh, you are not the Lord. You are not king. I am. And I'm going to make it abundantly clear. He didn't have to make it so obvious, but he wanted to. How about, again, the signs and wonders of Jesus performing while he was on the earth? He could have just said, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. He wanted to illustrate it over and over and over again to drive it home. So the table does the same thing. It signifies something. It's a sign that we are participants in saving grace. We have a seat at the table of the Lord. We're in his family by his grace. Pull up a chair. Well, he put the chair there and he pulled you up to the chair, but you know what I'm saying. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful sign, powerful sign. It's a sign of his sacrificial giving of himself in our place to give us a seat at the table forever. It anticipates the wedding feast of the Lamb where we will feast with him in his presence. So I give my body to be broken for you. I shed my blood to seal the new covenant for you you and for your eternal good. So if the Lord Jesus has spread this feast of grace and invited us, us, guilty sinners, to his table, what, I mean, why else would we be here if it wasn't by grace, right? Then what kind of things should we be doing around the table? What should be the family dynamics around the table? What are the family dynamics around your table? Ours is a little crazy sometimes, okay? So should, what should the dynamics be like around the table? Joyful? Oh, yeah. Celebratory? Yep. Grateful? Yep. How about some humble high fives of wonder? Like, woohoo! What am I doing here? This is great. We belong to Jesus. 
I don't deserve to be here. Also, I think brokenness over spurning such grace in light of how foolish it is to run away from Jesus. Yeah, that might also characterize the dynamics around the table. But then also the reminder you taste and see his forgiveness and more gratitude for forgiveness and cleansing in light of such foolishness gets kicked up. I mean, how about sweet love and unity among the siblings? Absolutely. How about glad willingness to pass the bread? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I don't know about you, but at our table, oftentimes it's like, please pass the ranch dressing. You know, like we can be so self-focused and whatever. What's a... What's a, an appropriate dynamic in light of what has been done for us to bring us to this table? What should characterize our family dynamics around the table? Sharing and selflessness and love? Absolutely. So it's a gospel culture, a cruciform culture that proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. But that's not the message that was being proclaimed in Corinth. Factions were there instead of unity. Pride instead of humility. Selfishness instead of sharing. Shame rather than honor, overindulgence by some while others went hungry. So do you see, like in light of the gospel, in light of what the meaning of this meal is all about and what Jesus has done for us, how the opposite dynamics that are characterizing the church in Corinth, it's kind of like nails on the chalkboard. I mean, do you hear, you know what I'm talking about? Like it should be nails on the chalkboard in light of the meaning of this meal. So I think, actually, we should let the nails of the chalkboard make us shiver so that we can avoid the ditch that the Corinthians veered into. So look, second point, the manner in which we share it. We have to look at the ugliness that was present in Corinth, but the actually, actually the thing we're, we're after, the dynamics we're after, is a cruciform, loving solidarity, unity. So let's look at verses 17 to 22. So Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's this pattern of kind of like a yes-but dynamic, where he's, he oftentimes commends them, you know, as far as this goes, that's great, but. <laughs> and then he exhorts them. He gets to the Lord's table, and he doesn't have anything good to say, because it's just ugly. So he says, I, I do not commend you because this is nothing but bad that's going on at the Lord's table. So verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. We heard about that back in chapter 1. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So sometimes these dynamics actually prove what's really going on in people's hearts. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So you got to get the original picture context in mind house church context. Back then, a wealthier person would, would have to be the one hosting, okay, a, house in a, a large 
house large enough for gathering. In the Roman culture in a city like Corinth, these larger houses would have a dining room. It's called the triclinium. But you obviously wouldn't be able to fit the church, the whole church in the dining room. Only some of the church members could have reclined there to eat. And we actually know a fair amount about hospitality culture in Rome, a Greco-Roman culture. You know, at that time, it wasn't abnormal for wealthy people to show hospitality to the poor, but they often did it in a way that made it really clear who was superior and who was inferior, who was the benefactor and who were the beneficiaries. So that main dining area would be for the wealthy host's friends who shared their socioeconomic status. The best food and wine would be served there. Then another room or sets of, set of rooms would be for the poorer guests. And the food and wine served there would be of poorer quality. So just made it really clear who the haves and the have-nots were. So instead of the cross of Christ shaping the hospitality culture in the church in Corinth, the cultural norms were continuing to shape the church, and it was ugly. So they're sharing the Lord's Supper in the context of a full meal, like the Last Supper, Passover meal, but sadly, the full meal accentuated their disunity, this ugly selfishness and pride of the haves over against the have-nots. It was just on display for everybody to see. So their Lord's Supper did not proclaim the Lord's death and the beautiful, gracious effects on a body of believers that the gospel is supposed to have. Instead, it proclaimed the same sort of socioeconomic divisions and selfishness and indifference that characterized typical Roman culture. So here was Roman hospitality culture colliding with the cross, and sadly, the Roman hospitality culture won. The cultural norms were winning out. That's not okay, Paul says. That's not the Lord's Supper. Paul has nothing to commend here. They are actually despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. So you can see how this leads easily into chapter 12, where he talks about the body and tries to say that every member is indispensable and certain parts should not have a superiority complex over others and others have an inferiority complex. Well, I wish I was more like that, gifted more like that. And then chapter 13, the love chapter that needs to govern their dynamics rather than selfishness and pride. So obviously we don't do a full meal when we participate in the Lord's Supper. And when we do have church family meals, whether it's at your community group or at a church picnic or, you know, whatever context, it's pretty typical that we bring a meal, we bring a dish to share with everybody, right? So we're good. We don't need to think any more about this, right? How do we apply this? I think at the very least, we need to be on guard against any kind of divisions or factions that threaten or creep into our body. We have got to stay humble at the foot of the cross and cultivate a culture of love and unity and sacrificial sharing and service. So instead of despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing, making them feel like second-class citizens, we ought to treat the blood-bought bride and body of Christ as precious. And we ought to gladly share with those in need in a way that honors them and doesn't shame them. Okay, so we're actually talking about gospel culture. 
Remember we did the series about a year ago called Gospel Culture where the truth of the gospel needs to be embodied in the way that we live it out or it undermines the very truth that we profess. So let me just give you a few juicy quotes to savor from Ray Ortland's book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. And just let this stir you up to long for the kind of gospel-shaped culture that proclaims the Lord's death until he comes um, because we want that to characterize our body in the way that we individually engage and what characterizes our church culture as a whole. So listen to these, these quotes. He writes, We might find it easier to see how big a change it is to enter into Christ's kingdom if we flip each of the Beatitudes to its opposite. Isn't this the world around us? Blessed are the entitled, for they get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they are comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they win. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they need nothing. Blessed are the vengeful, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for they get their way. Don't these beatitudes describe this world? But which of these two cultures, the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of this world, more accurately describes your church? The household of God must offer a clear and lovely alternative to the madness of this world. In our churches, God calls us to reach for something better than what many of us have ever experienced. What does the gospel create in this present world that wasn't here before? The gospel does not hang in midair as an abstraction. By the power of God, the gospel creates something new in the world today. It creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true, that Jesus is not just a theory, but is real. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The gospel does, not, it does more than renew us personally within. The doctrines of grace also create a culture of grace called a healthy church where the gospel is articulated at the level of doctrine and incarnated at the level of culture and vibe and ethos and feel and relationships and community. But getting a church there and keeping a church there is not easy. There are no shortcuts. Without the doctrine, the culture is unsustainable. Without the culture, the doctrine appears pointless and powerless. And then one more paragraph. We belong to the one who is altogether lovely, which means there can be nothing tawdry, cheap, sneaky, or nasty about us that should not be corrected immediately by his gospel. How will people on earth see the true beauty of our head, head of the body, if his body below is scarred with ugliness like everything else in this world? We have no right to disfigure his image upon us. Among the followers of Christ, beauty has authority. So let's just ask ourselves, be honest with ourselves, where does our behavior betray our doctrine or betray what we believe? And this is a call to examination. Let's prayerfully, actively root out any hypocrisy and let the cross shape us individually and corporately. So think about those prayers in the Psalms. Search me, O God. Even as we come to the table. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or Psalm 19, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So I think this leads us right to examination, which is where Paul goes as well. Look down at verse 27, where he calls us to examine ourselves and to discern the body. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another or share with one another. It could be translated. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So can you see how seriously we're called to take these issues? We dare not participate in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Now, let's be clear. No one is worthy of the seat at this table. Right? This table is for sinners to be sure. But this table is for repentant sinners. So if you are hiding or running from the Lord, you don't need to go through this motion and move on as if somehow that's going to help you. You need to get alone with God and repent. If you're harboring bitterness against some brother or sister or guilty in some unreconciled relationship, if you've treated some brother or sister for whom Christ died with contempt or you've sinned against them in some way, don't participate in the table and leave that matter unaddressed. Listen to the heart of Jesus in Matthew 5. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, and most certainly if you've sinned against that brother or sister, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So there are consequences for ignoring the call to repent and be reconciled to God and others. In Corinth, people were being disciplined by the Lord even to the point where some of them were sick and even dying as a result of it. So that discipline was, was actually intended to wake up this sleeping church so that they would not be condemned along with the world. It was gracious, loving, merciful discipline even though it was severe, painful. So we must examine ourselves and repent and be reconciled with the Lord if we're running or hiding with each other, if there is a breach that is something we're culpable for. So let's do that this morning as we approach the table. Examine ourselves and repent where necessary. And if you need to get up and go out of this room to take care of something, great. And then when we have, we can come with a clear conscience and joyfully participate in this feast for our souls. That's what it is. So I now want to invite you all to the table. I want to make clear again who is 
welcome to participate in this table. L listen to this. I, I ran across some quotes this week, so helpful. A theologian named Howard Griffith, he writes, since it is a communion with Christ, this feast is for those who are in union with Christ. Okay, so the question is, is Galatians 2.20, for instance, true for you? I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live my old sinful, selfish self. Therefore I no longer live, but the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you have trusted Christ like that, then you come to the table. He also went on to write, unless the promise of the gospel is believed, Christ remains outside us. So you can have grown up in the church, you know the gospel, you know it's true, you can know there's food in the fridge, but if you don't go get it, it's not going to do any good. So faith is not just mental assent to facts about God that you learn in Sunday school. Have you embraced Christ? And then also, even as we are Christians, oftentimes we can know certain promises and things that are true, but they seem like they're out here. And this table is a call to come and feed on that grace and ingest it so that it just gets down to our, the depths of our soul. So believe these gospel graces and promises that are ours. Don't let them just remain outside you. So if you're not in union with Christ, this ultimately is a meaningless ritual for you. Your greatest need is to see your need for Christ and own and repent of that sin and trust Jesus as your only hope of forgiveness and deliverance. So if that's where you're at and you're not sure if you're ready to trust Christ, just take this time to pray and ask the Lord to show you your need of him and, and this wonderful grace that was won on the cross. I urge you to trust him. For those of us who are united to Christ by his grace, through trusting him as our Savior and our Lord, if you are a baptized believer living in reconciled relationship with God the Father, by the gospel, by the work of Christ, and living in reconciled relationship to God's people, the church, the Lord loved you and gave himself for you, and he wants to give you this morning edible, drinkable grace. <laughs> he wants to remind you down to your soul what is yours in him. He wants to feed you and nourish you and strengthen you this morning. So the Lord's Supper, again, is a sign. It signifies something, just like the rainbow and the miracles of Jesus. It signifies that you are a participant in saving grace, that you have a seat at the table of the Lord. You are in his family by his grace, and we need all that that means to sink down to the core. So we need to be reminded. We need to chew on that grace. We need to taste it. We need to digest it. So where are you at? Coming in this morning, do you struggle with feeling like you never measure up? You feel like a constant failure? You burdened by the weight of regret? Plagued by guilt and shame? I mean, we could add a hundred things here. Are you lonely? Do you feel like you're feel poverty of spirit? I'm just like bankrupt, empty. Feel like no one loves you, no one cares, feel like everyone's out for themselves. Brother or sister, take and eat the bread and drink this juice and remember and believe and be strengthened by the grace that is yours in Jesus. Grace says that you have a seat at this table because 
It's all about Jesus' performance, not yours. Grace that sends our sins away as far as the east is from the west. You need to believe that if you are plagued by the weight of regret. Grace bears our burdens and gives us wings to mount up like eagles. Grace covers our guilt and our shame and covers us with pardon and honor. You're not alone. You have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You need to come and just chew on that. The riches of mercy and grace are all yours. You are loved, more loved than you can even begin to imagine. You are cared for by one who has proved it ultimately in the most selfless and sacrificial way possible and who continues to prove it day in and day out with unshakable faithfulness. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, eat and drink and be strengthened so we can proclaim with our lips and with our lives the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, thank you so much for doing everything necessary to provide for us a seat at your table. We deserve to be cast out into utter and outer darkness. We have all been rebels to your will. And we thank you that you sent Jesus to seek and save the lost and to bring us in, to bring us home. So Lord, help us to remember the love, the mercy, the grace that is ours in Christ and feed on it and be strengthened by it this morning so that we can proclaim in a beautiful, winsome way your death until you come with our words and with our lives and with our corporate communal dynamics, the way that we relate to each other around your table. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.